Friends, after what seems like an eternity, we finally received a brand new trailer for Final Fantasy XVI, and I could not be more excited. Holy shit, it's fucking epic. It looks amazing. I really want to talk about it. I want to talk about what we've seen and break down what might be happening in the game. And I also want to take this opportunity to talk about all the various games that came before it. The very important entries in the Final Fantasy franchise leading up to what I'm hoping is going to be one of the best Final Fantasy games we've seen yet. Welcome back to Space Castle, it's your clubhouse for all things nerdy. My name is DT, and guys, let's just jump right into it. What do you say? As of October 20th, a new four-minute-long trailer for Final Fantasy 16 was released, and goddamn, it's fucking epic, and I cannot wait for this game to come out, hopefully, in summer of 2023. In all likelihood, it'll probably come out in Christmas of 2023 or spring of 2024. I don't really know, but goddamn, I hope it comes out soon because I'm amped. This trailer absolutely worked for me. This is the most amped I've been by a Final Fantasy trailer since Final Fantasy VIII's incredible trailer. Fuck. Here we go. Final Fantasy XVI is produced by Naoki Yoshia, who is actually the producer and director of Final Fantasy XIV, which is the very highly critically acclaimed MMORPG. It had kind of a really rocky start, but they completely rebuilt it from scratch, and it's incredible. I spent almost a year playing it, and it's really enjoyable, so I'm excited for what Yoshia-san is going to bring to Final Fantasy XVI. So what we know is that the game takes place in the land of Philistia, which is studded with what's being called Mother Crystals, and will apparently be central to the story per Final Fantasy tradition. If you're a fan of the franchise, you know that crystals are always very important to the storyline of each game. They always play some sort of magical role in terms of character destiny and world shaping and things like that. The people of Alisthea use ether from the Mother Crystals to use magic, and as such, kingdoms have been built around each of the Mother Crystals. We know that Valisthea is somehow dying due to a blight that is sucking the life out of it, and is leaving regions of the continent dry and lifeless. We also know that there's going to be six major kingdoms all at play in Valisthea during the course of the game. This new trailer gives us a really solid look at each of the kingdoms and their individual leaders. On top of each kingdom having their own Mother Crystal, we also know that each is in possession of what they call an icon. It's this game's version of the traditional Final Fantasy summon creatures. So Shiva, Ifrit, Phoenix, Titan, maybe Quetzalcoatl, who knows. And to further that, each kingdom also has what they call a dominant, which is an individual who houses the power of each of these icons and can summon them when necessary. So to kick things off, we've got the Kingdom of Rosaria, which we pretty much know to be the home of the main characters, and is likely the good guys of the story, at least in the beginning. The game's protagonist, Clive Rosefield, is the son of Rosaria's Archduke, and it was thought that he was going to be the one to inherit the Phoenix icon and be the one to carry it, but it turns out it's actually his younger brother, Joshua, instead. So instead, Clive is acting as the lead guard of Joshua and the power of the Phoenix. So Clive's story begins when Rosaria is attacked by the Sambrak Empire, and the mysterious Eifert icon. You'll remember Eifert as being one of the most iconic summons in all of Final Fantasy. The big fiery ape-looking dude with the giant horns, he fucking rules. So that leads us into the Sambrak Empire, which is a massive theocratic power in Valisthea. Its icon is Bahamut, the King of Dragons, which has always been hugely important and popular throughout the Final Fantasy series. 
And its dominant is Dion Lesage, who is the Empire's crown prince. Early in the game, the Imperial Army invades Rosaria, like I said, and I'm guessing it's due to the influence of the dominant who escaped a region called the Iron Kingdom. Next up, we've got a region called Walud, which is centered in the region called Ash. It was conquered and won by a character called Barnabas Tharmer, who is the dominant of the Odin icon on top of being a masterful fucking swordsman. He was once a wanderer, but he's conquered the entire continent adjacent to the one where Rosaria and all the others are located. And he's amassed an army and a navy that rivals any of the kingdoms in Falcia. It's not entirely known what Barnabas' motives are, but he's been keeping a close eye on what's been going on across the sea on the other continent, and it's apparent that he's searching for the icon Ifrit. Next up, we've got the Dalmakian Republic. It's made up of five states and is ruled by a parliament, which is interesting. Bit of a departure from the ones I've listed so far, which are ruled by regents or kings and so forth. The parliament's special advisor is a man called Hugo Kupta, who rose to his position by being the dominant over the Titan icon. So Titan actually is in the game, just like I said, which is pretty rad. The guy is super rich, super influential because of his power, and from the trailer, I get the feeling that he's kind of a huge fucking dick. <laughs> and we've got the aforementioned Iron Kingdom, which is a group of islands ruled by the Crystalline Orthodox, which is actually an extremist religion. It controls some other crystal called Drake's Breath, which Rosaria actually draws their ether from to use magic and prosper. So this leads to two kingdoms at odds with each other, and the Iron Kingdom doesn't have its own icon dominant because it actually believes them to be abominations. So if an icon dominant is actually born in the Iron Kingdom, they're executed. So here's my theory. I am willing to bet that the dominant of the Ifrit icon was somebody who was born in the Iron Kingdom and somehow escaped, and he has reason to use the Ifrit icon to help the Sandbrack Empire attack Rosaria, which is going to kick off the whole game story so far. That's my theory. And finally, we've got the Crystalline Dominion, which is built around the largest of the Mother Crystals. It was the focus of many wars until the various kingdoms decided upon a truce. This truce established the Crystalline Dominion as its own kingdom, and it's ruled by a council of representatives from the other various kingdoms. And as such, probably for political reasons and whatnot, there is no Icon Dominant who lives there. So, we know from this trailer that a War of the Icons is coming, and we know that the players will take control of Clive in his journey through the story and all that might entail. What I'm hoping for is a fantastic, epic, Game of Thrones-style war in which all the major kingdoms are making careful and sometimes probably reckless moves to take power away from each other. The truce is obviously broken, and I'm guessing that the Crystalline Dominion and possession of it is going to be central to the war. Combat looks batshit fucking crazy, guys, and I fucking love it. Final Fantasy VII Remake's combat system seems to be a pretty obvious precursor to it, but like cranked up to like fucking 11 in Final Fantasy XVI. In this trailer, we see Clive Rosefield battling various monsters, uh, various leaders of the other kingdoms, and their icons. On top of what looks to be an awesome combat system, I hope the game actually also sports a robust leveling system, and I cannot wait to get to know Clive as a character. Now, we know the game won't feature an open world, but instead will be area-based, which I can see working very similar to, like, Dragon Age Origins, if you ever played that on the Xbox 360, where there was a world map, and there were certain points in the world map, and players could travel to each point when and where they wanted to. I don't think the world is going to feel small as a result of this. I think it's going to feel large and grand and epic, just like Origins did. The goal in these games is always to make the, the world feel epic and gigantic, and it looks like all the environments that are contained within the game are going to be huge and fully explorable, which is really neat. Hopefully the story isn't too linear. 
I know I said I wanted like an epic Game of Thrones style with a lot of political and war machinations happening and whatnot, but I do still want to have some sort of agency and ability to explore and kind of do what I want and do side quests here and there. Uh, if it is as epic as the trailers make it out to be and each of the kingdoms is making specific moves in their fire for power, I mean, it could end up being fairly linear. There's going to be a lot of story packed in here, a lot of character development, and it's hard to really pull that off with a massive, huge open world. Uh, I've read articles that say that Final Fantasy XV's biggest shortcoming was this. The world was so open and expansive and empty at times that it felt more like playing like a single-player MMO versus like an epic, in-depth story, and I totally get that. Still, I hope that the game leaves room for plenty of grinding, loot gathering, and customization for Clive. One of the big things I love about RPGs in general is crafting items and discovering new weapons and being able to customize the look of my character. We have seen Clive using multiple swords in the trailer that we just saw, and I hope there is the rumored crafting system for at least some customization. If not, and if it's just a game that's focused on character development and the robust war between the nations, I'm still going to be happy. And that pretty much is all we know about Final Fantasy 16 at this point. We've seen multiple minutes-long trailers that have given us a lot of information, but still not a whole lot of information at the same time. <laughs> it's kind of maddening, but I'm super fucking hyped for it. I cannot wait to play it. And this has inspired me to want to take a retrospective look at the previous entries in the Final Fantasy series and take a look at each one of them individually, their impact in the series, and their impact on gaming as a whole. So come along with me on this journey. And we're, of course, going to start with Final Fantasy 1. It was released in 1987 by Square, and the entire series was created by Hironobu Sakaguchi. And yes, the legends are true that the game was named Final Fantasy because it would have been Sakaguchi's last attempt at video game creation, and he would have gone back to school and pursued an entirely different career if the game didn't succeed. And it's also true that Square was on the brink of bankruptcy, and it really needed the game to succeed. So it was called Final Fantasy because it was the last attempt at both Sakaguchi-san and Square at producing a hit. Sakaguchi has since gone back and he sort of recounted and he sort of downplayed the situation saying things weren't quite that dire. But I mean, hey, I mean, it works as like a, a really cool legend and a tale. And it's something that's endured for 40 years. So whether or not it's completely 100% true is irrelevant. It's kind of become part of the pop culture lexicon, and I really like the story. I think it's, it's a really cool reason for calling the game Final Fantasy. The game itself was revolutionary. It was inspired by the Ultima and Wizardry series of RPGs, and it was given the green light by Square after Dragon Quest was such a huge success in Japan. And the game is most remembered for the excellent character class system, traversal of the super unique overworld, and its high level of difficulty. It's really fucking hard. <laughs> I never finished it as a kid, and I suspect many others didn't until the various remakes started to come out like many years later. It's really fucking difficult, guys. Like, I'm not, like, fucking spouting off hyperbole here. The game, of course, introduced many traditional Final Fantasy elements that are still prevalent today, like the iconic arpeggio intro theme, which was written by Yoshitaka Amano, who would continue to be the series composer and become one of the most renowned composers in all of video games. There are also various recurring characters who make their first appearance in this game, such as Garland. And this is also the very first introduction of Crystals as a storytelling device and would become one of the most iconic parts of the Final Fantasy series in general. Square took a huge fucking gamble on this game and they manufactured 400,000 copies in order to possibly facilitate a sequel if it became a hit. And it paid off, y'all. It was a huge success and they ended up selling 520,000 copies worldwide. It sits atop many of the best games of all time lists. It launched one of the longest running and most successful gaming franchises ever. 
and it set up Square as being the most renowned developers in the realm of RPGs. Sakaguchi-san and his now-expanded staff had the absolutely fucking Herculean feat of following up the highly successful original Final Fantasy game, and they did so by releasing Final Fantasy II in 1988. The sequel is fairly similar to the original in terms of gameplay, but with some pretty radical departures from the original. For starters, the game is much more narrative-driven, with an in-depth storyline featuring four main characters who join a rebellion against an evil empire, which is something we'll continue to see in future Final Fantasy games. And Final Fantasy II did away with the previous game's experience-based leveling system, and instead, this is actually really fucking cool. You decide how the characters progress by which actions you have them take. They'll become more proficient with the weapons they use, and their strength will increase. If a character acts as a tank and consistently takes a pummeling in battle, they'll gradually increase in hit points and will become better at absorbing damage. It was a really novel system at the time, and it's actually something that I believe sort of influenced series like The Elder Scrolls, where how you play determines how your character levels up and develops. Naturally, players figured out how to game the system and make their own characters attack each other in battle to make them stronger. <laughs> so even back in 1988, people were still min-maxing character builds in RPGs. Final Fantasy II also introduced Chocobos for the first time and the recurring character Sid, two things which have become almost synonymous with the Final Fantasy franchise. It was another huge hit, selling 800,000 copies in Japan alone. Sadly, it was never released in the United States until years later, as part of the Final Fantasy Origins anthology in 2003 with updated graphics and music. Still, it was highly critically acclaimed and one of the highest rated games in 1988 in Japan, and it cemented the Final Fantasy franchise as, to paraphrase the great John McClane, a badass franchise and it's here to stay. Coming up next is Final Fantasy III. This one came out in 1990 in Japan and, once again, was never released outside of Japan until a remake was produced many years later. The story behind this allegedly is that Square was focusing on shifting gears towards developing future titles for the Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom and decided against spending the time localizing Final Fantasy III for US audiences. There's a lot of other theories as to why Final Fantasies 2 and 3 never made it to America in the 80s, but we'll leave it at that for now. Final Fantasy III brought back the original game's experience point system, ditching the system from Final Fantasy II where characters develop based on players' actions. It did, however, introduce the now iconic job system to the Final Fantasy franchise, wherein each of the four main characters could change jobs to learn skills as they progressed, such as uh, stealing if they took on the thief job, for example. The game was once again one of the highest rated in Japan that year, and it would have been wonderful if American audiences could have been able to experience it too, but alas. <laughs> My own experience with the game is actually tied almost exclusively to the remake I mentioned, for the Nintendo DS in 2006. I was super hyped for it. I fell in love with it immediately when it came out, and the game's charm, retro feel, and the ability to play on the go on the DS, which is still one of my favorite consoles of all time, was fantastic. I do really wish that American audiences could have experienced the original Famicom version when it came out, but the absolutely wonderful 2006 remake was a solid consolation prize, and it's one that I still actually revisit often. Final Fantasy IV is where things start to get weird. So everybody knows about the really unusual and strange numbering for the Final Fantasy games and the disparity between Japan and the United States. So as not to confuse American audiences who never got the true Final Fantasy II or III, Final Fantasy IV was released in the United States in 1991 for the Super Nintendo as Final Fantasy II. 
The hundreds and thousands of people stateside who bought and played the original Final Fantasy no longer had to wait for a new entry to the series, and the wait was worth it. To this day, many people still regard Final Fantasy IV, or two if you live in the USA, as one of the best in the franchise. The game's graphics were already somewhat dated at this point because they were still working on NES games when they were developing Final Fantasy IV for the Super Nintendo, but that didn't stop gamers around the world from falling in love with it. It boasts a deep, complex story with true character motivations and development, an epic story spanning an entire world and its moon, and robust gameplay mechanics, and those make it one of the greatest RPGs ever released up to that point, and possibly ever, period. Final Fantasy IV, or two, this is going to get confusing, features 12 different playable characters, each with their own classes and abilities, and the game upped the party sizes in battles to five as opposed to just the four or fewer previously. And it also introduced the now iconic active time battle system. Fans of the franchise will know it better as ATB, and it became a long-standing staple of the franchise, mixing up the traditional turn-based style of gameplay in previous games and allowing players to actually input battle commands in real time. Final Fantasy IV was wildly received, landed on tons of best games ever lists for both that year and all time, and the game went on to sell over 1.4 million copies. And uh, that would be Goldblum, the Space Castle's onboard AI, telling me that if I don't stop and share some messages from Earth, he will make sure that this episode is only released in Japan. <laughs> so before we move on to Final Fantasies 5 through 8, let's listen to a message from one of our favorite indie podcasts. Hey, it's Misty and Liz with Talking Literature. We're sisters who don't know shit about literature, but we love to hang out and talk about the books we've read. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Talking Literature and on Twitter at Talk Literature. And look for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Final Fantasy V, up to this point, was Hironobu Sakaguchi's favorite entry into the franchise so far. It contains the favorite character design of Yoshitaka Amano, who is still to this day the lead illustrator for the series. It was released on the Super Famicom in 1992 to the tune of nearly a million copies sold on the first day in Japan. And wouldn't you know it, it wasn't released in North America. According to well-known game translator Ted Woolsey, it was just not accessible enough to the average gamer, in his words. An English translation of the game was attempted just after the game's release in Japan, and it was going to be called Final Fantasy III Stateside, but it was cancelled. It was then going to be released as Final Fantasy Extreme, sort of akin to the Japanese release of the true Super Mario Bros. 2 being renamed The Lost Levels in the US, but that too was cancelled. Multiple further attempts were made to translate, and those never came to fruition. So, once again, we Final Fantasy fans across the Pacific did without. Meanwhile, in Japan, Final Fantasy V received lower reviews and ratings than its predecessors, citing a step backwards in terms of story and characters, but a continuation and evolution of the series' gameplay. Square took the ATP style of turn-based combat from Final Fantasy IV and added in the now-famous ATB bar, which provided gamers a gauge for when each character's turn would come up in combat. The job system also got a continued development into allowing characters to learn skills as they leveled up on a job and then being able to carry on certain skills when they switched to a different job. So character customization continued to deepen even if character writing and development didn't. <laughs> This is the one game of the franchise I actually have zero familiarity with. It's not considered especially great when measured up to the other games in the franchise, and fans were angry for a long time at the continued cancelled translations for English-speaking players. 
So honestly, I've never really been compelled to try it. It's actually received numerous ports and remakes over the years though, including a Game Boy Advance version and for PlayStation. So if you're a completionist, or if you're just curious, you can actually track it down and give it a shot. Next up, we have Final Fantasy VI. Like, like okay, let's, okay, here we fucking go. Final Fantasy VI, released in 1994 in both Japan and the United States, if you can fucking believe it, is regarded as possibly not only the best game in the entire franchise, but one of the greatest games of all time. It's the first time that someone other than Hironobu Sakaguchi acted as director, and it was co-directed by Yoshinori Kitase, who would actually go on to direct Final Fantasies 7 and 8, and remain a high-ranking producer for the series, and Hiroyuki Ito, who would actually go on to direct Final Fantasy 9 and 12, and act as the battle system designer for both. The game is the first in the series to move away from traditional fantasy and introduce some steampunk elements, which is immediately evident from the opening credit sequence, wherein a mysterious woman and two soldiers march through a snowy field towards the small town of Narsh in giant fucking mech suits. It's super badass, it's fucking wonderful and gorgeous. The sequence makes absolute beautiful use of the Super Nintendo's Mode 7 capabilities, and it immediately illustrates a much-needed boost in the series' visuals. The game is absolutely gorgeous. The sprite work is some of the best and most expressive and beautiful in the series, or on the Super Nintendo in general. The game also boasts the most richly written and nuanced cast of characters to date, with 14 of them playable as members of your party. The villain, Kefka, is still one of the best in gaming history, and the game is shocking and revolutionary in that it's one of the earliest examples of the villain actually fucking winning, and the heroes actually having to regroup and scramble and overcome a villain who's already fucking won and do so against incredible odds. It's just fucking great. It has what I still to this day think is one of Yoshitaka Amano's best scores. Terra's theme, which actually acts as sort of the main theme for the game, is an absolute iconic piece. And Aria de Matsu Karatre remains one of the most beautiful video game tracks ever and has been arranged and played by countless orchestras around the world. Final Fantasy VI's story deals with themes such as life, death, and rebirth, and fittingly so because it acts as a sort of rebirth of the series for American audiences, and the bridge between Square and English-speaking fans all around the world was rebuilt. From this point forward, the US got every Final Fantasy game released, and with proper fucking numbering. <laughs> I mean, I might actually just go fired up after I'm done recording and editing this episode. To follow that up, for better or for worse, Final Fantasy VII is probably the most popular and important entry in the franchise. Released in 1997 for the Sony PlayStation, it's likely the reason why many kids around the world owned a PlayStation in the 90s in the first place, myself included. Directed by Yoshinori Katase, with Hironobu Sakaguchi on board as a producer once more, and with the returning composer of Yoshitaka Amano, it was actually kind of a radical departure from the franchise at that point, and it set the tone for the rest of the series to follow. Gone forever were the days of pixel graphics. The game was actually originally going to be developed for the Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom, but it was decided early on that the game was just too large in scope and ambition, and it needed to be developed for CD-ROM. So this ended up marking a departure from Square's partnership with Nintendo, and a moving on to Sony and their PlayStation platform. Final Fantasy VII was the first in the series to feature polygonal characters on pre-rendered backgrounds, full motion video cutscenes, and it marked an even further departure from traditional fantasy and more into steampunk and sci-fi storytelling. Guys, this game was a fucking juggernaut. <laughs> Spanning multiple discs, it sported the most varied and detailed overworld of any Final Fantasy game, and the deepest and most ambitious story to date. 
I actually remember going to my junior high's library with my buddies and flipping through issues of Electronic Gaming Monthly, the issues that actually had previews of the game before it came out. And I remember begging my parents for a PlayStation and a copy of the game as like a late birthday slash Christmas present that following January. And when the game came out, I was absolutely obsessed. I maxed out the game timer at 99, 99, 99 multiple times. I had everybody's ultimate limit break. I had all the characters at level 99. I had everybody's ultimate weapons. I bred the gold chocobo and I got the fucking Knights of the Round materia. I collected the entire Extra Knights series of imported action figures, which are actually worth quite a bit now. And I missed a lot of valuable lessons in school because I was just too busy sketching the characters in my sketchbook over and over and over again. And I was not the only one. Final Fantasy VII is credited with cementing JRPGs and turn-based gameplay as a mainstay in Western gaming culture. It rocked the entire fucking world. Its story, featuring many recurring Final Fantasy themes and elements such as rebels fighting against empire, life, death, and rebirth, captivated the entire world despite a somewhat shaky English translation. The story oftentimes appears to make no fucking sense, and honestly, some 25 years later, a lot of it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> but uh, that didn't stop the world from falling in love with it and its characters and naming it one of their favorite games ever. It's honestly probably not quite as good as Final Fantasy VI, but it's really fucking important, you guys. And not only did it reshape the Final Fantasy franchise, but gaming in general. It spawned numerous spin-offs, a motion picture, an eventual remake that just came out in the 2020s decades later, and Cloud, Sephiroth, and Eris, or Aerith if you want to be traditional, are forever woven into the pop culture tapestry. Final Fantasy VIII is a weird one to round out the first half of this two-parter, and guys, I know it. Look, it's not my favorite entry in the franchise, but a lot of people really love it, and I totally understand why. Released in 1999, Final Fantasy VIII's production was incredibly rushed due to the overwhelming, world-fucking-shaking popularity of Final Fantasy VII. Yoshinori Katase returned as the game's director, and he had the absolutely insane task of following up one of the most beloved and important video games of all time, and not only that, he had two years to do it. And in a lot of respects, he actually succeeded. There are some absolutely epic moments in the game's story, the rivalry between the main character Squall and his nemesis Cypher is well-developed and a lot of fun. The visuals are a huge upgrade at the time and did away with not only the small chibi versions of the characters in favor of human-proportioned character models, but it also did away with the party leader being the on-screen representative for the entire party. Now, every member of your chosen squad is on-screen and they follow the leader in sort of a lemmings-like fashion. These are two revolutionary things for the Final Fantasy franchise, guys. Like, it's difficult to stress how mind-blowing it was to have all three of my party members on screen walking around together and not doing, like, this weird sort of morph-merge thing anytime one of them wasn't speaking. However, the breakneck speed at which the game was written and produced is very evident in both the overall story and the mistakes that were made along the way in the game's production. Let me preface the rest of this by saying that I was ridiculously fucking hyped for Final Fantasy VIII when it was coming out. The teaser trailer, which would end up being the game's opening cinematic, is something I would watch every fucking day after school. I made friends watch it. My parents got fucking sick of hearing Fethos, Lusek, Wacos, and Venosek blasting out of the computer speakers every day at the same time. I showed this trailer to my grandma. She had no fucking idea what it was or what was going on, but bless her, she was fucking amped about it for me. Then the game came out, and while the first disc is still pretty great, as the rest of the game has some absolute banger epic fucking moments, 
The characters are honestly, I think, cliche at best. The story is convoluted and aimless at some points, and in others, it's far too convenient and rushed. In terms of gameplay, the draw and junction system is an interesting one, in that characters will suck magic spells from wells that are scattered around the world, or suck them out from enemies and store them within themselves. Doing so allows the player to increase the stats of the characters by junctioning the spells to various attribute slots, like strength and physical defense, magical defense, and so forth. This is all fine and well, but the real trouble in the game's design is that the world brutally levels up with your characters, and the game never actually ever tells you that. So I played this game like every other Final Fantasy game. I grinded the fuck out of my character's levels to get them all to 99, I collected every character's ultimate moves and weapons, and I completely fucked myself by doing so. Because I got to the game's final boss, and despite all efforts over weeks of agony, I could not beat her. So I gave up. I downloaded the game's final cinematic and closing credits on the internet, and I moved on. It wasn't until sometime later that I learned that the game was poorly designed and it became standard practice amongst fans to actually avoid all battles if possible, and just not level up at all, and instead rely on that draw and junction system to be strong enough to finish the game. And by that point, I was fucking pissed, and I never actually revisited it to try and beat it once and for all. And to be honest, there hasn't really been much reason to try and revisit it since. Like I said before, the game's production was very rushed, and as such, many of the game's files were never backed up and were lost forever, making a true remaster pretty much impossible. Square has actually gone back and re-released the game with updated character models and character textures, and trying to make updates where they can, but the characters now honestly kind of look ridiculous against the 1999 pre-rendered backgrounds, which by today's standards and on HGTVs look really muddied. Still, the game has some of the finest themes Yoshitaka Mano has ever written, and like I said before, it has some of the most bombastic and epic moments in the franchise, and overall it's still regarded favorably by a lot of people. Some people still really love the game, and I understand why. The game's central theme of love is a strong one, and while Squall and his love interest Renoa start out as kind of flat and boring characters, their growth together and into compelling heroes is actually pretty great. Reviews for the game are mixed, with lots of people calling the gameplay systems tedious, and honestly, believe me, I understand that too. I would actually love a remake of Final Fantasy VIII akin to the remake of Final Fantasy VII. It's a game that I think still has a lot of potential. I think there's potential to rewrite the characters, flush them out, and make them way more compelling. I think it would be great if they went back and redid the combat system, because the gunblade is still a fucking dope weapon, and I want to be able to use it properly in like a solid, robust combat system. And I would like to actually go back and re-experience the story with some better character beats, but still with some of those really fucking badass moments I mentioned before, and just a better cohesive package. But it's taken up 25 years to remake Final Fantasy VII in just one singular part. Who knows how long it's going to be before all three parts of Final Fantasy VII Remake are finished. And even if they started a Final Fantasy VIII remake, I don't know that I would ever see it in my lifetime. <laughs> We were well into the pre-order phase of video games at this point when Final Fantasy VIII was released, and it amassed over 2 million pre-orders. The game went on to set records to become one of the most profitable video games of all time. It ensured the continuation of the franchise, and in turn, guaranteed part two of this two-part retrospective on the Final Fantasy franchise. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this episode of Space Castle. As always, it is your clubhouse for all things nerdy, my name is DT, and I want to thank you guys so much. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash spacecastlepod. You become part of the crew. You receive all kinds of cool perks on our Discord and otherwise. You'll find a link to that in the show notes below. 
If you have any questions or comments or you want to tell me a story about your experience with the Final Fantasy franchise, or if you want to tell me I'm completely wrong in something I've said here, you are absolutely more than welcome to do so at Space Castle Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Or if you'd like to do it in a more long-term form and do it privately, you can shoot me the email at spacecastlepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If I get some really good comments or questions, I'd be more than happy to read them on the next installation of this two-part series. Cheers, and be good.